Hey, everybody, if you want to tell the world something or sell the world something, head on over to Squarespace because they're going to help you build the website of your dreams. Say you want to sell some custom merch. Well, you can set up your online store, whether you sell physical, digital, or service products. Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. So go to squarespace.com stuff right now, and you will face a free trial. And when you get ready to launch, use our offer code STUFF, and then you'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. How could you go wrong with Squarespace? Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. Disclaimer, drug episode. Hey, everybody. We recorded an episode on LSD, and uh, we just wanted to throw it out there that we talk about LSD and other drugs in a very frank, open, uh, non-judgmental way. So, uh, parents, you may not want your... Little kitties to listen to this one? It's up to you. I don't know what kind of household you run, but that's our disclaimer. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant and Jerry, and this is Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right, Josh. Uh, I'm going to wish you... Two things. Mm-hmm. Happy anniversary. Yes, happy anniversary. Because the day that we're recording, it was eight years ago this week that we released, well, not we, you. We. I wasn't even there yet. You were here in spirit. I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, it's when Stuff You Should Know was born. Yeah. 2008, uh, mid-April. Eight years ago. We got Crazy. 42 years to go. <laughs> and happy Bicycle Day. Did you know that uh-huh. it was Bicycle Day when you picked us out? No. Really? Really. That's, actually, that's amazing. Isn't it? Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, um, it was, what, the thing that prompted it was that recent study about LSD, and I was like, wow, oh, yeah, we should totally do LSD, we've never done it. And it was, I think yesterday that I realized today is Bicycle Day. Yeah. And for those of you who aren't in the know, Bicycle Day- It's not about riding bicycles to work. No, it's not. As a matter of fact, somebody on Twitter said, every day's Bicycle Day to me. I'm like, <laughs> I bet you don't you know take a what lot Bicycle of acid. Day is. <laughs> so Bicycle Day commemorates the day when um, Albert Hoffman, the discoverer or creator, I guess, depending on how creator. you look at it, of yeah. LSD, um, experimented on himself. And part of that included him riding his bike back home from work while he was wigging. Yeah, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But uh, Bicycle Day itself was started in 1985, supposedly by Professor Thomas Roberts of Northern Illinois University, Go Huskies, in commemoration of that, uh, what some people say was a great day in history. Sure. It um, certainly was a day that changed history. You really can't argue that. No, and um, if you want to just hear all things LSD and stuff you should know, we did two other shows. Mm-hmm. 2008, did the CIA test LSD on unsuspecting Americans? That's a good one. The answer is yes. Mind-opening. <laughs> and October 2010, can you treat mental illness with psychedelics? Yeah. And uh, now 
in typical stuff you should know, backward form, yeah. we're going to do LSD. Yeah, we like to nibble around the Not edges. do LSD. <laughs> right. You know, that'd be weird. Oh, we weren't supposed to? Uh-oh, we better get through this quick. <laughs> we got about 30 minutes. Uh-oh. Oh, we should also point out at the end of this episode, we uh, have uh, John Hodgman on as, in a very special listener mail audio segment where he rebuts our nostalgia uh, episode. Although seems like we agreed more than we yeah, rebutted. He didn't, he didn't end up rebutting anything. Yeah. Uh, and that's... We worked out the, 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 the misunderstanding. How about that? <laughs> yeah. And we, like all times that you sit down with Hodgman, we talked for 30 minutes about one small thing. <laughs> and, uh, that's why this episode is super long, because this is going to be long, too. It is. So it's supersized, robust. We should sell like eight more extra ads. Oh, let's. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. Like Tommy Chong would probably want in on this one. He's got some businesses, doesn't he? Yeah, I shouldn't joke because sales will be like knocking on the door. All right. <laughs> hey, Chuck, really? Really? <laughs> so, Chuck, we're talking about LSD today. Yeah. Um, and LSD, again, that, that bicycle day, that first day 73 years ago, I think, it really did change the world because there are very few substances that have ever been created by man that had a more sweeping, profound effect. Yeah. Than LSD. True. Like you kind of, a lot of people associate LSD with hippies, the Grateful Dead, sure. maybe ravers, that kind of thing. But if you really start to kind of poke around popular culture here in the West, yeah. you start to see it turn up everywhere. Yeah, like every American president has taken LSD. Right. Well, it's part of the <laughs> oath of office. Like the uh, Bible is laced with LSD. They put their so hand on put it. put their hand on it. Yeah. Actually, let's debunk that myth right now. Apparently, LSD is non-absorbent through the skin. Yeah, which means that those, uh, well, well, there's a bunch of rumors, but the one with Jimi Hendrix would put LSD in his sweatband. <laughs> right. And let it just he, leach he may into have. His forehead. Oh, wouldn't yeah. have done anything. Although it could have trickled down into his mouth. Maybe. Yeah. Uh, here's some other popular LSD myths. I don't think there have been any other drugs that have spawned, maybe these days, but I'm not hip to all these new drugs. Man, and like it's Snopes. impossible to be. I was doing research for this, and I ran across like all the new drugs that are available today. Yeah, it's incredible. There's just like a, a an avalanche of new, new, virtually untested drugs. Yeah, that's being they're they're going from synthesis to human trials by way of customer. Yeah, like people are taking these things, and they're essentially like guinea pigs for these things. Still, it's just extremely dangerous. Yeah, Molly and Billy and Jenny. No, no, it's and- way beyond that. Jimmy, Jimmy's old news. Jimmy's old news. Uh, here are just a few quickie, uh, highlights. Um, the, the guy that thought he was an orange, so he, like, peeled his skin off. Uh, clearly LSD did that. <laughs> Not true. Uh, college kids who stared at the sun until they were blind. Clearly LSD is <laughs> responsible for those children. Uh, lick and stick tattoos given to, out to children at Halloween. LSD. Laced with LSD. Yep. Uh, seven hits will make you legally insane. Right. <laughs> you can use that as a defense in court. Uh, Diane Linkletter, uh, jumped from a window because she thought she could fly. So that was a big one. That kind of changed public opinion. Well, she jumped from a window. She definitely did, but she was also suicidal and oh, yeah. she had taken LSD before. What made it such a huge case was that, um, she was Art Linkletter's daughter. Yeah. Art Linkletter at the time, this was, I think, the early 70s when his daughter committed suicide. Um, he was already a bit of a, he was like the Bill Cosby of the age. Which is not surprising. In what way? <laughs> in means a in lot the of uh, the moral crusader and kind of um, social scold of everybody, 
and how things are just not like they used to be. And the good old days are so much better. Gotcha. And uh, everybody's just letting their kids get away with so much and pull up your pants and that kind of stuff. Oh, boy. He was a bit like that already. And then his, his daughter um, committed suicide, yeah. and um, he was understandably uh, devastated by that. And he turned um, his ire toward drugs because yeah. she had taken LSD before. But there's no evidence that she was on, on LSD at the no. time. She was already suicidal. But, again, Art Linkletter is going to all of the, the kids' parents and saying, like, you can't let your – don't let this happen to your children, too. Right. Scared America's parents and really kind of sealed the deal of public opinion against LSD at the time. Yeah. Uh, and how about one more for you? Uh, Pittsburgh Pirates pitcher Doc Ellis throws a no-hitter. Uh, on acid. That's true. That's a hundred percent true. Well, I know we've covered it, doofus. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you were putting one in. To... Yeah. Oh, sorry. There's sorry. a great documentary about it, and um, doofus. A hundred percent true is the only person's word we have to go on was Doc Ellis's. Let's well, just say his that. girlfriend uh, also. I don't want to say testified, but she she backed it up. She was like, "Yeah, yeah we took acid." And I did some I more research. She was pitching. Uh, into it though, and apparently the story changed a bit over the years. Oh yeah, and he also said other things that didn't quite match up. So uh-huh. there's a little speculation that he might have gussied it up a little bit. Oh, like the ball was telling him what pitch to throw. Well, and, stuff and maybe like that. when he took the acid. Um, so supposedly he took it at noon, and he was pitching at like seven. Yeah, six thirty. So I mean, he still would have been on acid. He just wouldn't have been yeah. peaking on acid or something. Yeah, but it, it's a great documentary. You should check it out. Yeah, it's good. Okay. You threw me off with that when you got me. I was <laughs> like, like, oh, no, Chuck. Chuck. Uh, <laughs> we, we did an internet roundup on that. Yeah, that's right. So there was another thing, Chuck, that I, I remember growing up with is that acid, if you took acid, it would mess up your chromosome so that when you had offspring, kid, uh-huh. they would be all kinds of messed up, disfigured, deformed, yeah. would have severe um, developmental defects, all sorts of terrible stuff. That's what we call it back in the early 80s, by the way. Yeah. Um, it could put holes in your brain. Yeah, that's another one, too, that everybody ran around believing. And one of the reasons everyone ran around believing all of these weird myths. By the way, no, LSD doesn't affect your chromosomes. It actually uh, is metabolized and out of your system faster than just about any other drug on the planet. Yeah, you pee it out. Very quickly. Yeah. Uh, your liver starts breaking it down immediately. Um, so it certainly doesn't affect your chromosomes, and it, it doesn't put holes in your brain. But the reason why these myths are around and the reason why people believe them is because the authorities are the ones who either made up these myths or latched onto them and basically amplified them through the, these kind of public service announcements and through the media. And yeah. so a lot of people walked around believing this. And, and on the one hand, you can say, well, that's fine. It kept some kids maybe off of heroin or something. Lying to kids is fine when it comes to drugs. You can make that case, right? Yeah. But at the same time, you can also point to the real chilling effect that the LSD hysteria had on um, understanding consciousness. Yeah. Potentially treating mental illness, yeah. which we're just now starting to realize, like, yeah, it has a lot of potential for that. Yeah. Treating alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of people whose lives could have been helped had at the very least, uh, science been allowed to continue its inquiry into LSD. But the, the, the fear of LSD was so widespread and so profound mm-hmm. that even science was clamped down. Yeah. The CIA was like, only we can give people <laughs> LSD. Right. Not you scientists. Yeah. In controlled settings. Right. There's this one guy, I don't know where the lawsuit is now, but he, uh, I don't think we covered it on our show about the CIA, but 
the family of a guy that supposedly jumped from a window after being dosed by Frank the CIA. Olson. Yeah, but uh, his family suing the CIA mm-hmm. saying, no, he was beaten up and shoved out the window yeah. because he had information. I think he was actually dosed, though, and he was losing his stuff. I don't know. He was dosed, but their 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 contention, the family that he was thrown out, is that he was murdered. I saw that too. Yeah, yeah. That's that uh, like, the Frank Olson Project dot org. Maybe yeah, yeah. is what the website is, and we definitely covered that. Did in we? The, the CIA thing because okay. he definitely he was around at the time that happened at that time because that was the time when like if you went to a, a party with CIA. They were all just dosing one another for fun. Yeah, if you went to a San Francisco CIA party. You, <laughs> you were, were hardcore be, at the time. Yeah, you're going to be drinking acid unwittingly. All right, so we should, uh, even though we've covered it before, the story is so wonderful, we should go over the creation of LSD by Albert Hoffman mm-hmm. again. Don't you think? Please begin. You didn't want to skip this, did you? No, I was, oh, okay. I was, I think we should put in like a little accompanying oh. music or something the way you set it up. It's beautiful. Yeah, like, uh, some Jefferson airplane, maybe. <laughs> so, um, a Swiss chemist, his name was Albert Hoffman, uh, like we said a few times. He was working at a lab called Sandoz. Uh, they were a pharma company. And now they're, uh, they're still around, but they're a subsidiary. I can't remember who. They're not making drugs anymore. No, they are. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so he was working on a project, uh, involving something called ergot. It's a fungus. It grows on rye, and it's been blamed, uh, notably, this woman named Linda Caporale. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, she put forth a, a theory that the Salem witch trials were kicked off by a round of ergot poisoning. Yeah. And she has a lot of good evidence. Yeah. Um, I won't go over it all. It's, it's cool to look up, though. And a lot of people came out and were like, you know what? I bet she's right. So you were going to talk about the uh, the Hoffman story. Yeah, so he was working with ergot, uh, which grows on rye and um, did a lot of poisoning over the years, notably in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Uh, even though they used it medicinally, uh, midwives used it to help speed up labor until they decided in the 19th century, that's eh, pretty dangerous, actually. Yeah. Um, maybe we should just not poison these pregnant women with ergot. Well, they were they were not just giving them ergot to poison them for fun. Apparently, it well, no. it um, contracts muscles, right? Yeah, so it, it would speed up labor. Right, exactly. Um, and they figured out that it that it would actually prev- it would slow bleeding. I think by dilating blood vessels, maybe. Oh yeah. So they would give it to a woman after labor, still, but they stopped giving it to them like to to create to put a woman into labor. Gotcha. But it was. Um, it was remarkable enough that even after this level of medicine um, went away, scientists were still figuring out they're like there's something with ergot. We've got to be able to do something with it. It's just too potent, right? You know. So uh, in the 1930s, this was the 1930s. It's just so crazy to think about when you see pictures of the 1930s. Yeah, they have like wires hanging everywhere <laughs> for their new electric lamps, like experimenting with LSD. It's weird. Uh, but it happened. Um, at the Rockefeller Institute in New York City, they isolated lysergic acid from ergot. And um, this is where Hoffman kind of started his work, uh, resulting in 1938 in the 25th derivative, the number 25, as in he did 24 previous. Mm-hmm. He finally landed on LSD 25. And uh, that was kind of it. Yeah. And LSD, we should say, stands for lysergic acid diethylamide. And, uh, basically he started with this lysergic acid, um, and just basically tinkered around with it until he, like you said, arrived at LSD 25. And again, he wasn't looking for 
the most potent psychedelic known to humankind. No, he's looking for medicine. Exactly. He was looking for, I think, a respiratory um, um, stimulator, something yeah. like that, maybe Stimulate for kids with asthma. Uh-huh. So, yeah, give these kids some LSD-25. <laughs> right. It'll cure their asthma <laughs> right up. And uh, he, the first time he messed around with it, he sent it off to the pharmacologist to look because he was a chemist at Sandoz. Now, chemists at Sandoz, they figure out processes to yeah. extract stuff, to make new compounds, that kind of thing. But that's that's the sum of their job. Once they come up with a new compound that they're satisfied with, they send it off to the pharmacology department. Yeah. The pharmacology department says, uh, yeah, actually, this made that frog's leg jump by itself all the way across the room. We yeah. think there's some potential here. The pharmacologists got their hands in 1938 on LSD-25, examined it, said, we don't think there's any pharmacological potential here. Throw it away. And Hoffman did as he was told. Five years later, he um, suddenly just thinks about LSD-25 again and is like, you know what? I think they missed something. I'm going to make a new batch just on my own. Yeah, later on he was quoted as saying, I did not choose LSD, LSD found and called me. So him deciding to make a batch on his own is highly irregular. For the sure. first, for one, he's a chemist. You know, the chemists don't go and tell the pharmacologist they miss something. They certainly don't have a hunch five years later they miss something. And then thirdly, for him to make a batch of LSD was very weird. It was contrary to his work orders. And also, ergot was very expensive, and Sandoz was trying to keep a, a lid on expenses. So it was really, really weird that five years later, he mixes up another batch of LSD. That is true. But while he was mixing it up, it was a sort of a little, like a Peter Parker experiment gone wrong. <laughs> right? He got a little inside of him. Somehow. Uh, they think now he probably got it on his fingers and maybe like... Licked his finger while he was... He had been eating KFC <laughs> for lunch. Yeah, maybe so. And uh, it got into his body. Uh, and he, you know, he had an acid trip. He a- did. An accidental one at first. The world's first acid trip. That's right. And that happened... Unless uh, one of those pharmacologists was keeping something on the down low. <laughs> He's like, yeah, this is useless. Yeah, throw all this away, except just save me like 10 times. Just my head stash. <laughs> So that was April 18th, 1943. And um, the next day, Albert Hoffman's like, I got to try that again. Yeah. So he takes some LSD. I think he took 250 micrograms. At 4.20 p.m., believe yes, it or not. Yes, I noticed that too. Almost on 4.19. Yeah. But that's a marijuana thing. 4.20 is. Yeah, just I just it kind of jumped out at me as like. I thought I saw that too. I'm sure everyone who's ever read that was like, oh, dude. <laughs> sure. 419. Oh, he was so close. That's the universe. So he took 250 micrograms. Is that right? Which is about 10 times the minimum dose that an average person takes these days. Yeah, that's a lot. Of and acid. He, he shot it. He injected it intravenously, I believe. Yeah. Didn't he? he? Or did uh, he take it orally? I'm sorry. No, he took it orally. Yeah, I don't, I don't see in there where he injected it. And uh, he started to have a wild ride. He did. He went to the doctor at first. He uh, asked his assistant, and he was like, um, I am tripping. Pretty hard. You don't know what that is yet, <laughs> but I do. And he said, I think I should go to the doctor. And he went to the doctor, and the doctor was like, dude, you're fine. Uh, you're not fine, but there's nothing physically going on with you. Right, and we should say uh, he was at, he made it to his house with his assistant, and they were on their bikes. This is why, where Bicycle Day comes from. Yeah. And he was like, my God. 
how long did it take for us to get home? And his assistant's like, actually, we made it home really fast. Yeah. And he's like, what? And he's <laughs> freaking out. He's like, go get me some milk from the neighbor. Ends up drinking two liters of milk that night. Yeah, because milk could supposedly quell the effects of different drugs at the time. Yeah. So it, it made sense. It did nothing for this. No, and uh, his neighbor uh, later on, there's a couple of stellar quotes. Let me jump back. Sorry, jump back, Jack. That's all right. After 40 minutes after that initial dose, he wrote down in his journal, 1,700 hours. Beginning dizziness, feeling of anxiety, visual distortions, symptoms of paralysis, desire to laugh. <laughs> Full stop. Yeah. Uh, and then following that closely, I was able to write the last words only with great effort. <laughs> <laughs> And then who wrote that last line? <laughs> and when he got the milk, he said, um, the lady next door, whom I scarcely recognize, brought me milk. Oh, she yeah. Was, she was no longer Mrs. R, but rather a malevolent, insidious witch with a colored mask. Yeah. So people think now he was fearful going into this experiment. And that's what, you know, we'll talk about set and setting and the, your mindset going in has a lot to do with what kind of trip you have. Right. And people think now, like, he went into it fearful and ended up by all accounts, having a bad trip. He had a bad trip, but yeah. then the doctor came and was like, look, man, uh, you, something wacky's going on with you, but physically, you're fine. You don't have to worry about it. And I I believe that's what kind of freed Hoffman up to... Have a good time. Have a good trip yeah. after that. He uh, really started to go, oh, wow, and really took in what he was seeing, what he was thinking, what he was experiencing, and... um Move from dysphoria to euphoria is a, a, the way he would have put it. That's right. And he goes into work the next day, tells everyone about this amazing experience, and uh, everyone else tries it. Well, th- not everyone, but other people at Sandoz. His it. two bosses did. I yeah. think his boss and his boss's boss. <laughs> and the the reason they were like, nah, was because he said, I took 250 micrograms. They're like, that's astounding. 250 micrograms. Yeah, that's nothing. Right. That, that They've never heard of a compound having the kind of effects that Hoffman was reporting. Yeah. And he's like, I measured it myself. I know what I was doing. And it was 250 micrograms. These guys each took a third of that. Mm-hmm. And they tripped pretty hard themselves. Sure. And from that moment on, Sandoz was like, we're on to something here. Yeah. He also experimented on uh, animals. He started dosing well, you name it. He gave it to mice, and he said they moved erratically and showed alterations in licking behavior. They taught themselves to tie-dye? Uh, cats. Cats' hair stood on end, and they salivated. He put cats and mice together, and instead of the cats attacking the mice, uh, said the felines would ignore the rodents or sometimes even appear frightened by them. How about that? Yeah, that's uh, a cat on a bad trip. It said chimpanzees did not show any obvious signs of being affected, but normal chimps around them became upset. Which he, his theory was, they failed to maintain these weird social norms that are only perceptible to other chimps. Yeah. Fish swam oddly. <laughs> and <laughs> finally, spiders altered web building patterns. At low doses, uh, the webs were even better proportioned and more exactly built than normally. But in higher doses, the webs were badly and rudiment- uh, rudimentarily made. Yeah. So he would give it like, look, there's a roach crawling across the floor. Let's dose it. See what happens. And there, there's also a very famous case, and it wasn't Hoffman who who tested it. This dude in Oklahoma, um, who was a professor of maybe pharmacology, I'm not sure, psychology, he shot an elephant. He got his hands on the like Oklahoma City Zoo's <clears throat> elephant and shot it 
full of LSD. Oh my God. The elephant like trumpeted once, fell on its side, started seizing its eyes roll back on its head. It bit part of its tongue off. It stayed like this for an hour. He finally, ultimately, a lot of people point to this as a, a fatality from LSD, proving that you can die. There's such a thing as a fatal overdose from LSD. Wow. Um, but other people say, well, actually, and then he shot the elephant with even more tranquilizers to try to calm it down, and that's probably what killed the elephant. But that's this guy the worst gave thing this, I've ever heard. But it, it was like that for like an hour and a half, just suffering Ugh. on just a, an enormous amount of acid. And the guy actually used to boast about it. He He kind of wore it like a badge, like it made his career. And it was just such a foul thing yeah. that even the Scientologists were mad about it and released, like, <laughs> articles criticizing the guy and his work. Really? But, yeah, and then there's a lot of questions about whether he's actually um, a, a CIA-funded scientist as well. Well, he had a blowgun. That's the first thing they give you when you sign up for the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your blowgun and gallon of LSD. Yeah, but R.I.P. Tusky the Elephant. He went in a really bad way. Was that his name? Yep. That's terrible. Yep. Uh, so long story short, uh, Sandoz is on to something. Um, they say this research is compelling. We're going to patent this stuff and market it as, uh, Delicid, Delicid, D-E-L-Y-S-I-D in 1947. And, uh, they started advertising it for use. Like psychiatrists, you should get some of this stuff. Get some. You should use it yourself and use it on your patients and see what happens. They said, again, I just want to repeat what Chuck said. Use it on yourself. Well, yeah, you, so you know what's going on. Exactly. Well, that's highly irregular compared to the psychiatry of today. They don't usually go like, here's a here's a couple of Xanny bars for you to try. <laughs> Just, you know, eat some and then you'll know what your patients are going through. They don't do that anymore. No, come on. So... <laughs> Well, the, 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 they're not supposed to, Chuck. Okay. Um, but yeah, Sandoz was like sending this stuff out as, uh, an experimental drug. That's how it was labeled at first. And as it caught on, um, it, they moved it into like full on marketing and started selling them like hotcakes. Yeah, it's pretty neat. If you look up, uh, Delisid for Google images, you know, it's just packaged right there. It looks like it's a very 1960s box. Sure. It says Delisid LSD 25. Yeah. Here it is in the vials. So weird. And they came in uh, 25 microgram doses, which is a it's a low dose. It's about half of what an average dose you would buy today would be. At a fish concert. I guess. <laughs> I'm sure. That's even a dated reference. What, yeah. what are people doing LSD these days? EDM shows? Sure. Uh, Skrillex shows. Okay. How about that? <laughs> That's probably dated. It probably. We're, so We're old, Chuck. I know. We're old. Uh, Billy Joel concert? Sure. Yeah. People inject LSD at Billy Joel concerts right in their eyeball. So by um, by the mid-1960s uh, is when it actually became illegal in 1966. Well, hold on, Sando stopped making it. Before that, though, as when it was selling like hotcakes, yeah. like it was having a, a real beneficial effect in the psychiatric setting. Oh, yeah. 40,000 doses were given to patients. 40,000 patients got doses. Just in the U.S. alone, okay. right? I mean, like a lot of doses were sold, and that was just the U.S. And yeah. it was having an effect. In the in Europe, they used it for um this they they used it for uh, I can't remember what it was called. I want to say like psychotronic or something like that, where they just give you like the the average dose, maybe two pills, a low dose, and then they would talk about your childhood and that kind of thing. They used it to to kind of 
disarm the patient, right? In the U.S., they used what was called psychedelic therapy, where they would give you about 10 times the minimum dose, about what Hoffman took when he experimented on himself, right? And that was meant to just not not just break down your defenses, but to, to completely blow your mind, basically, so that when you came back down, you had had all these revelations and you were essentially a better person with a more fulfilled sense of self and meaning in your life. Yeah, those were the two schools of thought. Like in Europe, we'll talk about your childhood and give you a little acid. Right. In America, we're going to open all these doors of perception. And the thought was that you could skip years of psychotherapy. Right. With like a, a good acid trip. And a lot of people had this experience. Very famously, Cary Grant was um, hugely into acid as a result of going to see his psychiatrist in Beverly Hills. And there's a really, really great article from Vanity Fair from a few years back called Cary in the Sky with Diamonds that I would strongly recommend going and reading because it's really interesting. And it gives you a really good glimpse of this era where like, like the Mad Men era but everybody's taking LSD for at their psychiatrist's office for eight hours. Well, there was a LSD episode for Mad Men. Right. I think it's mentioned in that article. It's It, it was one of the best of a great show. Yeah. When uh, Roger Sterling takes acid. Yeah. It, was it at his psychiatrist? Uh, no, it was, um, it was just like a, you know, like a party. Right. Okay. But, it, but like a party where they were saying like, do this to expand your mind. It wasn't, you know, like right. slip to him or anything. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. But it had a profound effect on him in the show. And Chuck, there's actually this awesome little quote from Cary Grant that makes it in that uh, that article about his experience with LSD. One of them, at least. He said, um, when I first started under LSD, I found myself turning and turning on the couch. And you have to imagine Cary Grant saying this, too, sure. right? which makes it even better. Oh, I am. I said to the doctor, why am I turning on the sofa? And he said, don't you know why? And I said, I didn't have the vaguest idea, but I wondered when it was going to stop. When you stop it, he answered. Well, it was like a revelation to me. He, he, he felt like he was under the spell of LSD or there was whatever. He, he realized like he had control over his life. Wow. It's kind of cool. Nice. So it, it did have a really big effect on, on people in real life as well. But like you said, very quickly in very short order, within 10, 12 years of it being marketed for the first time by Sandoz, it starts to become outlawed around the country and around the world. Yeah, by 1965, uh, not a lot of research was done in the United States. Um, by 1969, there were only six projects conducted. By 74, the uh, National Institute of Mental Health said that it had no therapeutic value. And then the final experiments in the United States took place in the 1980s. Uh, and those studies and most of the newer studies now uh, are concerned with end of life care and terminally ill patients. Yeah. But the, 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 uh, window is starting to open once more to studying LSD and its effects on neurology and, um, psychiatry and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and actually when it started to get outlawed and Sando stopped making it, they recalled their stocks of it and, um, handed it over to the National Institutes of Mental Health for study. But within a few years, the National Institutes of Mental Health said, like, no, no therapeutic value whatsoever. Yeah. Despite 40,000 people in the U.S. alone basically singing its praises, no therapeutic value whatsoever. Yeah. Well, I don't know if all 40,000 people said it was great. I would say a significant portion of them. If you go back and look at the media yeah. coverage of it at the time, it was mostly favorable. It was very promising. Yeah. 
Uh, all right, so we're going to take a break here and come back and teach everyone how to make LSD. <laughs> Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you should know. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode... Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. All right, Josh. All right. Uh, the first thing that you want to do if you want to make LSD is be a really, really good qualified chemist. Yeah, with a really good qualified setup. Yeah, this is not meth. You can't go to Walmart. Make it in a Mountain Dew bottle. And make it in a Mountain Dew bottle on aisle six. Right. Uh, shake it up real good and you've got meth. Yeah. Um, this is the, the, Ingredients are tough to get, and they're highly regulated. Yeah, they're not sure. found on drugstore shelves. No, it's very different. No, plus, I mean, you can start with um, and there's actually other natural sources of LSD precursors, including um, Morning Glory seeds and Hawaiian Baby Woodrose seeds. Yeah, and there are some LSD recipes that call for extracting the stuff called LSA um, from these things and starting with that. But it's it's a coin toss. What kind of quality your ultimate LSD is going to be. Yeah. Cause you don't know how, how good the LSA is in these things. Plus the government, um, in a nod to their prohibition era tactics actually put a toxic coating on these seeds yeah. to discourage people from using them to create LSD or even eating them, which some people do. Right. So I guess if you're a legitimate LSD chemist, you are starting with ergot. Like Hoffman did. That's right. Just like in the old days, uh, in the 1930s. Uh, what you want to do, uh, you get this fungus, uh, which is the ergot, and, and you have to culture it to extract the alkaloids from that ergot. Right. And you have to have a dark room because uh, just like sheets of acid can be contaminated by sitting it out in the sun in the back of your Jetta. <laughs> 
uh, the fungus itself will decompose under bright light. Right. So you got to do some of this early work in a dark room. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, you take the ergot, once you have it extracted, um, you, you're, you're isolating the alkaloids, right? Ergot alkaloid. Yeah. And um, when you've got the alkaloid, you add some solvents and reagents to it, which themselves are dangerous as well. Yeah. Um, one of them is chloroform, which is a no-joke chemical. Yeah, Hoffman actually the next day thought, he didn't quite know for sure that it was the LSD, so he huffed chloroform because he thought, uh, you know, it's probably the chloroform. He's like Jeff Bridges in The Vanishing. <laughs> so he huffed some chloroform and I guess woke up a little while later and said, nope, that wasn't acid. Nope. <laughs> Something different. Must be the LSD. Um, so chloroform's not good for you. Um, another one of the reagents is uh, anhydrous hydrazine, which sounds like a Douglas Adams character. Yeah. And it's a known carcinogen, very poisonous, and both of them are easily breathed in and absorbed through the skin. Yeah. So it's these things are no joke, and they're important in in uh, turning ergot alkaloids into LSD. That's so right. it's very difficult, very dangerous if yes. you're not getting that picture. Yeah, hopefully no one's like setting up in their kitchen and like following along. It's we'd say. This. Well, I mean, <laughs> you would get nowhere very quickly. We're not giving out detailed information and. What's funny is funny you bring that because until I think like 1965, yeah. you could mail off to the U.S. Patent Office and for 50 cents, they would mail you the, the patent to yeah. LSD, which is the recipe for LSD. Wow. You could get it directly from the U.S. government for a few years. I bet it's online somewhere, don't you think? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. On the dark web? Probably not even. <laughs> On I Can Has Cheeseburger? Probably. <laughs> So uh, the ergot alkaloid is then synthesized into lysergic acid compound. It's called isolysergic acid hydrolyze. I'm sorry, hydrazide. Nice. And uh, you add, you do that by adding some chemicals, heat it up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, shake it in your milk jug. Put a little basil <laughs> in there. Um, is it okay to joke about this? If it's not okay That's to joke do, about right? this, Chuck, then we've lost our sense of humor. That's right. Uh, then that is isomerized. Which means, and this is pretty advanced chemistry, but it's really advanced chemistry. Yeah. Uh, it means the atoms are actually, the molecules are being rearranged in a chemical process. Right. With a little heat, a little reagent, yeah. solvent, that kind of stuff. It's taking a compound and basically doing the old switcheroo, and then bam, you have an entirely <laughs> new chemical as a result. That's right. So um, you cool that down, you mix it up with an acid and a base, evaporate right. it, and you are left with isolysergic uh, diethylamide. Isomerize it again. Uh-huh. Because, you know, if once is good, two is better. <laughs> then you have LSD. And it's it comes in the form of a crystallized powder, uh, I believe. I think it also says you can also make it a liquid. No, you have to do something else to make it a liquid. So it when you have LSD that you've synthesized from ergot alkaloids, yeah. it, it's a crystalline powder, a white powder. Yeah, and in the old days, in the in the 60s, um, you could make microdots, which was a tablet form. Uh, you could just mix it with liquid and, you know, use it like, a, you know, put this drop under your tongue. Right. Um, or, you know, make tea out of it or whatever. Uh, and then window pane, which was gelatin squares. So that's still around. I saw on Reddit, yeah. some kid was like, look at this. And he was holding like a huge thing of window panes. And I think he called them well, window panes, too. Yeah, they're uh, the great, great movie, Flirting with Disaster. 
Did they take gel tabs? Well, that one of the the son, Lily Tomlin and Alan Alda's son, at the <laughs> end of the movie, doses everyone at dinner right. with window pane. Yeah, that's what he calls it. Yeah, and I always just think that that's a funny word for it. Uh, but these days, you're more than likely going to see what's called blotter acid, uh, and what they do is they just dissolve that powder in ethanol and then dip a sheet of blotting paper that's conveniently uh, perforated into tiny little squares. Mm-hmm. About and, a quarter inch by a quarter inch? Yeah, they're little, and, and you, he soaks up into that paper. Um, sometimes the paper is just plain white. Sometimes it's got little cartoon characters and things. Oh, a lot of times. And uh, then that's, you know, that's a sheet of acid. Right. There's actually a dude in San Francisco who has a acid museum, and he has a book, like a, a huge binder yeah. of sheets of acid just to basically show off the right. artistry on it. And um, it's like, how has this not been rated by the DEA? I think the answer to that is because the DEA doesn't know it exists. It's probably fake, right? No. I would say that's stupid because it's he, just his, a waste of money. His, um, well, I, I mean, he wanted like, to preserve it Like, why would he just put fake paper in there and tell everyone it's acid? Because what he's, he's not trying to sell it. He's trying to say, like, look at the art that people make for No, no, that's for, what I'm saying, though. For acid. Why would he waste all that money putting the drug on something? He's not, he's put, buying it. I, I don't follow. Like, he's going out and being like, wow, that's a really beautiful sheet of acid. Oh. I'm going to buy it and put it in my museum. Well, that's even dumber. So he said that these things have been exposed to light over the years and that they're they're most likely totally inactive. That he was said that the last thing. 12 times I tried to take it, it didn't work. <laughs> He's like, but I, I traveled back in time <laughs> so maybe a couple of times. <laughs> so uh, each uh, square is a dose and you can get up to 900 doses on a single sheet. Uh, and we'll get to this later, but the well, you might as well talk about it now. Uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling in early 90s mm. where they said um, the weight of the drug is also the weight of the paper, which... Uh, it's nuts. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people got really up and remain upset about this. Uh, the, the argument is that's the equivalent of saying, well, this cocaine came in this um, suitcase, so just weigh the suitcase right. with the cocaine. Right. And if it adds eight pounds, then it adds eight pounds. Right. Uh, instead of measuring the actual quantity of the drug itself... It's measuring the carrier device. Right. And one reason they did that was because the weight of, again, LSD, when you're looking at a minimum dose of about a quarter quarter of a microgram, yeah. that's like the, the weight of two grains of salt. Yeah. So if you're trying to bust people, you could be like, well, a quarter microgram gets you a year or well, something Well, that's like why that. I don't see why they didn't do that. Just rewrite the law to reflect the weight of the real drug. I don't know. Because that's all they'd have to do. I know. It was, yeah. it was very weird. It's ham-fisted. Yeah. Can I say that? Yeah, you just did. But the long and short of that is there are people uh, that dealt acid at a fish show that are in prison for longer than, you know, rapists and murderers. Oh, yeah. There's a guy who's um, in prison for life without parole. Yeah. He's like 66 now. He's been in there for a while because he got busted with some acid. Yeah. Um, For life. Yeah. His, he's spending his life in jail because he had acid with him. And he's seen violent criminals all around him get yeah, out on parole. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure. Pretty interesting. Uh, so should we talk about what an LSD trip is like? Yeah. According to whoever wrote this article? I think this is a Shana Freeman joint. Yeah, I thought most of this was pretty good. There and were a few parts that I was like, come on. It was, uh, yeah, very straightforward yeah. and uh, logical and Not reasonable bad. and rational and... Myth-busting, too. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Uh, so the hallucinations that one would have on LSD, 
I think there's there's a bit of a misnomer there in that some people might think, oh, you know, I saw a pink elephant come in the room and sit down beside me, and I thought it was real. Um, that's not exactly what they mean by an LSD hallucination. No. Uh, what they mean more is, um, you know, I stared at the wall, and the wall looked like it was pulsating and breathing. Right. Or that painting had a glow around it. Uh, and it, and it's also a case of not, oh my God, what's happening to my brain? It's, oh my God, this acid is awesome. Right. Or t- bad or strong. But, but yeah. I know that I'm on a drug and it's making all these hallucinations happen. Precisely, right. And is that the, a fair way to say it? Yeah, it's a great way to say it. I mean, it's, it's, it's away from the classical definition of a hallucination because you don't, and it's also, you don't you don't believe what you're seeing is like real. You realize that it's the result of the drug. Although I'm sure some people have taken acid and really uh, thought like, you know, it's done such a number on their brain that they didn't know that they were on the drug, which is why you have your buddy there to say, no, 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 that's the acid. Right. Well, that's that's another point that um, Shana Freeman makes in this article is that because of the the trip and how what a profound impact it has on the brain. Um, you typically want to trip with other people yeah. who have experienced tripping in a very calm place. And you mentioned set and setting earlier. I think that was Timothy Leary that came up with that. And set reminds, uh, refers to mindset. Yeah. And setting refers to the setting that, that you, in, you take your acid in, right? So you want to be in a positive frame of mind or else you're going to probably have a bad trip. And you want to take it in a calm, comfortable setting, like your home, or Shana Freeman suggests the park. <laughs> yeah, maybe don't, if you're stressed out about finals, maybe don't take acid before you go to class to take those finals. You're probably going to have a bad time. That would betray set and setting in a profound way. Exactly. So the trip itself um, typically lasts for something between maybe 7 to 12 hours. About halfway through, uh, you're going to experience what's called the peak and the whole thing's going to really start about 30 to 60 minutes after you take acid. Uh, yeah. And if you've ever been to college and seen someone taking acid like on the dorm floor, mm-hmm. you might hear a lot of like, I don't know if it's working yet. I don't think it's working yet. <laughs> I don't know. I think we got ripped off, man. I don't think. And then all of a sudden. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then you just shut their door and then you go and study like a good student. Right. Physically, Josh, you might have dilated pupils, uh, increased blood pressure. You know, your body temperature might raise. You might get a little sweaty and dizzy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might be drowsy. Um, you might be tingly in the extremities. Right. Your stomach might feel kind of weird. Have a metallic sensation in your mouth. Yeah, you're probably not hungry. Right. Um, and you may... Uh, you're seeing things in a very weird way. You will probably start to notice patterns... Basically, in the air, you could see a wall breathing, like you said. Sure. Um, you're going to see things in a different way than you normally do, is the best way to put it. Um, in some extreme cases, some people have reported synesthesia triggering yeah. in them, where their senses are basically getting mixed up. I wonder if they're synesthetes. Maybe, in that, like, unlocked it. Maybe. Um, it, I'm, that's entirely possible, because uh, there's a pretty well-established school of thought that says that if you are predisposed to a um, brain-based mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar yeah. disorder, um, taking LSD can hasten its onset. 
It's not going to give you schizophrenia. It's not going to give you bipolar disorder. Right. But if you were already predisposed to it and the symptoms hadn't started yet, right. it could hasten that. True. Uh, emotionally, uh, Shana points out that it kind of can run the gamut from happiness and euphoria. Uh, you love everything. You love everyone. Everything's magical. That's the key word right there. What's that? Magical. Yeah. Everything seems magical to you. Or it can go the other way. Um and you can have, you know, bad emotions, and that's, you know, probably part of the bad trip if you go into it in the wrong headspace like we talked about. But that's the crux of it still. The the magic is still the crux of it. Sure. Re- regardless of whether you're having a euphoric or a dysphoric experience, right. it still seems to have supernatural qualities to it. It's not yeah. just normal um, having a bad experience, bad mood kind of thing. It's like the it's universe profound. is coming apart. And it's it's uh, all reflecting poorly on my life. Yeah, uh, and I think with a lot of hallucinogenics, that's why they're used in in spiritual and religious ceremonies mm-hmm. uh, all over the world. Right, because it's a profound experience. It can make you very contemplative. Uh, you know the things you think. It, it can make uh, people look inward and uh, discover things about themselves, and so that's why I mean, like ayahuasca and uh, mm-hmm. or ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca? Ayahuasca. Ayahuasca. It's in there somewhere. (laughs) And Magic Mushrooms, we did a great episode on that. Yeah. Um, They've been used for millennia around the campfire. Yeah. uh, For people to, like, you know, quote, unquote, unlock these doors in their mind that they don't readily have access to. The doors of perception. That's right. Uh, If you are an observer of people on LSD and you're not on an LSD, you might think, man, they're talking a lot about really things that aren't very important. But to the person on the LSD, it's very important. It's the most important thing in the world at that moment. Right. And uh, the, the person not on LSD and the person on LSD will both mutually scare one another. Yeah, and usually end up in different rooms at a party. Sure. Uh, and then there is the uh, the, the time jumps. Um, it just really will mess with your sense of time, according to research. And they will say that uh, you might think you've been doing something for five minutes and it's been an hour. Or it might be the reverse. Right. And you might not have any idea how much time is passing. So whether uh, you're having a good trip or a bad trip, the one thing that all trips are going to have in common is that they end within about 12 hours or so. Like the magical thinking goes away. What you would perceive as normal reality starts to set back in. And um, there may be some sort of emotional or mental hangover. Not a hangover like one that alcohol brings on, but more just like a whoa kind of thing. Yeah, after a profound emotional mental exercise. Or being put through the grinder. Sure. Um, you're going to, you will have some sort of, you'll be awash in something. Yeah, agreed. But you, reality will return eventually. Right. That makes sense that you would have an emotional hangover, Chuck, because... LSD basically mimics the shape of serotonin and kind of hijacks your serotonin receptors is how it does its thing. So serotonin is in part responsible for mood regulation, emotions, that kind of thing. So it makes sense that you'd be a little wacky the day after you trip on LSD. Interesting. Uh, sometimes you might uh, see a, a- I always say college students. I keep picking on college students. I mean, that I would guess when it happens. about 98% <laughs> of acid trips are Probably undertaken so. by college students. Um, 
you might see a college student uh, admit themselves to the ER or call an ambulance. Um, <laughs> and the doctor's like, this was a terrible decision on your part. Yeah, and you go, why are you talking to me about this? Just heal me. And the doctor will pat you on the head and put you in a, in a quiet room. And no, maybe... no, the doctor meant coming to the hospital while oh. you're on acid. <laughs> I got you. Uh, but when you get to the ER, the doctor will pat you on the head, put you in a nice, quiet, dark room, re- reassure room. you <laughs> that everything is okay. Uh, they may give you some anti-anxiety meds or a tranquilizer to sort of chill you out a little bit. But basically, they just uh, keep you in there and tell a nurse, like, do me a favor every hour, go in there and make sure that guy isn't breaking some equipment. Right. And he'll be fine. And, you know, sounds like about six hours. Yeah. So that's tripping. Tripping 101. Um, you want to take another break before we get into, like, what's going on in your mind? Yeah, why not? All right. So uh, everybody... Bear with us, man. Learning stuff with Joshua and Charles. Stuff you When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Did you know that Boricua is the name for someone from Puerto Rico? But it's more than just a name. It's a way of life and representation of the vibrant spirit of the island. Yeah, that's right. It's an island that's filled with adventure around every corner and natural treasures waiting to be explored, like El Yunque, the only tropical rainforest in the entire United States. That's right. Or you can get swept away by natural beauty and come away with unique stories that could only be experienced in Puerto Rico that remind you of why you travel in the first place. Visits end, but stories last forever. You don't become a part of the island. It becomes a part of you. That's right. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. So, Chuck, what's going on? Right now? <laughs> yeah. Well, you just went and pee-peed. You went to the little podcaster's room, <laughs> and now you're back. During the break? That's what's going on. Uh, what's going on in the mind, you mean? Yes. On LSD? Yeah. Funny you should ask. Uh, here's the deal. When this article was written, uh, she said researchers aren't 100% sure what LSD is doing in the brain. They still aren't 100% sure. No, we have a better idea, though. A much better idea. Um well, let as me go of, back of, a little bit. As of 2016. Well, yeah, this this one was from 2011. A Yale psychiatrist named Andrew Sewell, uh-huh. uh, one of the few dudes in the U.S. who uh, does psychedelic drug research. He's not L7. He's not square. <laughs> <laughs> 
Remember that band, L7? Yeah, yeah, they were good. Yeah. Remember, it was them, the Breeders, and Four Non Blondes all came out with like great albums all at once. And Hole. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take issue with Hole all right. and Four Non Blondes. I'll take that one back. No, Four Non Blondes, they have that Hey Ah song. That whole album was pretty good. All right. Wasn't bad. Okay. I was listening to Pavement the entire time. You could listen to all of it. All right. I was listening to Pavement, too. No, I'm just kidding. I liked L7, though. Um, Andrew Sewell, uh, he was a Yale psychiatrist, like I said, or maybe still is. And he said at the time, uh, that it had to do with the thalamus. Sensory impressions are routed through the thalamus, which acts as a gatekeeper. So his theory at the time, which was, uh, built upon research from Franz Vollenweide, <laughs> Switzerland, said that, uh, drugs like LSD and psilocybin, um, they tone down the thalamus's activity. So in other words, the gatekeeper doesn't work. Uh, the, the, he likened to, to a spam filter on email. Mm-hmm. Said it's not working as well. So it lets, uh, it lets unprocessed information through to consciousness. Which is a great explanation of it. That was 2011, you, but like you got this that from, week. You got that from live science, right? Yeah, I think yeah. so. That was a good, good explanation of it. Yeah, but we have brand new hot off the presses information. Which I, which doesn't necessarily contradict that, right? Agreed. So I think uh, Imperial College of London researchers got their hands on some acid, gave them to some people, and threw them in a wonder machine yeah, and 20, looked at their brain. 20 volunteers. Volunteers, we should add. Right. That had all taken LSD oh, before. Yeah, <laughs> this wasn't against their will. No, and that uh, they wanted people that have tripped before and people that knew they could handle mm. taking acid and being in an MRI machine, which we already have mentioned is weird and loud and right. claustrophobic. Right. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. That was very wise of those guys. Yes. So the upshot of it was that we now have brain scans of people under the influence of LSD for the first time in human history. And it's it, it's really kind of opened up some new ideas for what's going on on an acid trip. And you should see the difference of these, like the comparison, the control oh, brain yeah. scan amazing. and the one on acid. It's like... You don't even have to read the caption to know which one's which. <laughs> like one is like, oh, okay, I'm, I guess I'm thinking, I'm aware of myself, uh, my toe itches. Uh, <laughs> well, how am I going to pay the water bill this month? And then the other one's just like, yeah, like that. It's amazing uh, what they said. I'm just going to read it because they say it better than I ever could. Um, they said LSD simultaneously creates hyper connections across the brain, allowing the functions of seemingly unrelated regions of the brain to ooze into one another. At the same time, the drug apparently chips away at organization within networks. Like, all of this sounds like right on the money. Mm -hmm. Uh, Including a system the brain defers to at rest called the default mode network. Yeah, that's a big one. uh, Which normally governs functions uh, such as self-reflection, bing, uh, autobiographical memory, bing, and mental time travel, bing, bing. Right, so what, what what they're saying is is that the idea that you see things differently, that you think about things differently, that you understand concepts like the universe and reality and your place in it differently than you normally do yes. is 100% accurate. Like LSD changes literally the way you think about the world by changing the connections in your brain. Yeah, and notably they point out um, in the 60s you would always hear a lot about the ego and the sense of self. Right. Uh, they, they think they have proven through brain scans that LSD literally makes you f- 
forget your sense of self for that time. Right, and, and it allows you to do something that LSD is very famous for, which is make you feel connected to the universe, to humanity, to the gazelle population, right. to everything. Just feel connected. And again, it's called um, ego dissolution, right? Yeah, which is a, a one of the, you know, it supports the notion that when you take acid with somebody, you have this bond with them. Uh, perhaps even a lifelong bond. They also found that the effects, the psychological effects in the individual as well, have lasting impacts as well. So it's not just like you're on the drug, you're under the influence of the drug. What you're thinking and feeling um, is temporary. It actually creates a pronounced and most commonly positive change in the individual's outlook on life and sense yeah. of well-being. Which is pretty amazing, but now yeah. we have brain scans of it. The brain scans just in every way seem to support everything everyone has always said. Not everyone, but the people that weren't making up stories about acid right. said about acid. The people who never said, oh, I see a pink <laughs> elephant in the room. That's right. The people who never went up to somebody and like waved their hand in front of their face. Oh, yeah. Those I people. S- I saw somebody do that like a couple summers ago at my neighborhood pool. Oh, really? There's this dude behaving strangely, and I was like, I wonder. And then somebody went up and went like that to him. I was like, oh, now I know. Oh, wow. So super promising research, and I think it's awesome that they're looking into this stuff again. Um, do you, are they doing this in the United States at all yet? Because didn't they sort of allow it again yes, a there, few years ago? There was a 2014 um, study with like 12 uh, – Terminally ill patients with cancer. In the United States? Yeah. But it's still like very small groups of scientists are probably working on this. Yeah, stuff. like like 12. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they're using very small study populations. But the results yeah. that they're finding, like in this case, um, the, the, the cancer patients reported even 12 months on a more positive outlook on life, despite the fact that their life was coming to an end prematurely, in yeah. their opinion. Um because of the acid, they're finding like all of these, the studies that are being carried out are, are finding such sweeping, um, conclusions uh-huh. a- about the potential for LSD to positively impact people's lives that, um, they're all of them are like, we need more studies, more studies, more right. studies. We need more people involved in them. Like, let's get back to studying this, which we left off of like 40, 50 years ago. Well, yeah. For no good reason. Really. And, and 40 and 50 years ago is when the scientists thought like they were on the cusp of making some real breakthroughs right. when everything gets shut down. Um, and back then, like they're, the, the way they do the studies now, it seems like are way better. They didn't have controls back then. They didn't use controls in most right. of these well, like, experiments. Timothy Leary was carrying out these studies. I mean, give me a break. All right, let's talk about acid flashbacks. This False. is, uh, yeah, I mean, Shanna calls it very controversial among LSD users and researchers. Um, I'm going to say false outright because there's zero evidence that it's a real thing and that the body actually uh-huh. retains some bit of LSD, but you've heard, you know, the rumors like it's in your spinal fluid. Yeah. Uh, it's in your fatty deposits. And years later, you can be sitting in a meeting and have a full on hallucinatory acid flashback. Right. There's no mechanism that this could be carried out by where there's like just, yeah, like your, your body stores some acid for later and you start to trip again suddenly. There are people who have reported it. Um, but it's entirely possible that they're mentally ill. 
Right. Or it's entirely possible they're suffering from something called hallucinogen, hallucinogen? <laughs> hallucinogen persisting perceptive disorder. This sounds pretty awful if you ask me. Yeah. And this, uh, I did a little more research. Apparently this is linked to persistent LSD use. Um, someone who's done a lot of acid and it is, even then it's still not due to a buildup of LSD molecules in the body. So what, maybe they rearranged their neural connections? Well, it says... Or uh, were they also predisposed to mental illness? Well, I think a lot of times it says current medical opinion is divided as to the cause. Uh, some people think it's a form of uh, PTSD. Other people think it, there were changes in the brain morphology hmm. because they did so much acid. Huh. But it's still not like the old story, like you had acid in your body from a trip long ago. Right, now you're just reactivated. You're just like burned out sitting in the corner. Yeah, and supposedly in 1991 is where this was all born at an educational meeting for uh, DEA agents in San Francisco. A speaker said, uh, he suggested that the re-release of LSD hidden in the bodies of users led to untimely psychotic flashbacks. And uh, no one has tape of this, but there are people that wrote about it in all evidence points to like this is where the acid flashback uh, myth myth was born huh. was from this one speaker. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, who knows? Way, way to go, dude. <laughs> so um, again, we were talking about like there's a lot of hysteria surrounding LSD. People have died on LSD. What's what's at issue is well a couplefold. One is there a lethal dose of LSD? Yeah, that's never been proven. Right, despite the millions of acid trips that people have taken, it's never been conclusively shown that LSD led to the death of a human being. Yeah, I would assume, like, there's a lethal dose of water. Right. So I would assume if you drank five gallons of LSD, you might die. Yeah. But then it's so out of the realm of believability, it's just like, why even talk about it? Right. And there have been cases of people ingesting massive amounts of LSD. So the minimum dose is a quarter microgram, which is, um, like... 25 thousandths of a gram, I believe. Is that like what an acid hit is these days? Like a I think it's, that's about hit? a half of a, a hit. Okay. It's a mild hit from what I understand. So if you go splitsies with your girlfriend at the fish <laughs> concert? Then you'd have like, yeah, yeah, th- that would be that kind of dose, I guess, right? Gotcha. So, um, the, the, that's a, that's a very small amount. Like thousandths of a gram. Some people have taken, like, no, thousandths of a milligram, I'm sorry. Okay. That's the, that's yeah. the dose. Some people have taken milligrams of this stuff. Wow. Accidentally. Um, there was a group of people in 1975 in a, at a party and they thought they were snorting cocaine, but it turned out they were snorting powdered LSD. Boy, oh boy. And one person was shown to have had seven, have ingested seven milligrams of LSD. Unbelievable. So that's like 70, thousand times the minimum dose, something like that? Yeah, and I think uh, this is actually in the Western Journal of Medicine, and they, most of the people just, boom, it knocked them out immediately, and they passed out. <laughs> the people that were awake, well, everyone went to the hospital. Right. Uh, because it was, by all accounts, an overdose of LSD, but every everyone was fine. So that's what it was. That's like 7,000 micrograms, and a minimum dose is a quarter of a microgram. Yeah. So, yeah, they, like 12 hours later, they were fine. And 12 years later, they five of them were examined for years uh, for long-term issues. Um, 
and no one had any issues at that party, at least. Right. There's another one, another person who shows up in one study. I'm not sure what the the case was around it, but the person survived ingesting 40 milligrams, which is 40,000 micrograms. Wow. Um, and apparently survived. So, so the the toxic dose, the LD50 dose, which is where half of the people who took that dose would be expected to die. Right. Um, it's never been established. We don't know what it is, but it's it, it's huge. It's yeah. massive. So the pharmacological deaths from LSD have probably never happened. What what is what has been documented is behavioral deaths. People who um, took risks potentially that um, they wouldn't normally have under the influence of LSD. Yeah, maybe I, went swimming. Sure. In a place they wouldn't have normally gone swimming. Maybe jumped from a building, not because they thought they could fly or anything like that, but because I think I can make it to the ledge right. and go party over there. Whereas if they were under normal conditions, they wouldn't have engaged in that behavior. Yeah. So, you, so yeah, you, poor judgment, basically. Right. Right. But again, those are pretty few and far between. Although when they do happen, they're they're tragic. Yeah, and there there are also cases of like heart attacks and strokes. But um, with something like that, there's usually other drugs involved, and you can't conclusively say like the LSD caused the heart attack. Right. There's also apparently no documented confirm, confirmed report of somebody committing suicide under the influence of LSD. It's more like Art Linkletter's daughter, somebody who had taken LSD before, right? And the L, their L, their previous LSD use was blamed for it, but right. there's, from what I could find, not a documented case of someone who was on LSD and went nuts and killed themselves, right? And even then, I think uh, it would it's a, that's a difficult thing to prove that something caused something, right? Uh, because then you start digging into that person's. Uh, closet and find out that they were suicidal anyway and this was a long time coming um who knows it's, it's a tough thing to prove the upshot of it is that the documented evidence of the positive effects that lsd can have on the human psyche um vastly outnumber the recognized tragic events that have taken place as a result of lsd can i read this one part about heavy lsd users because i yeah. thought this is kind of funny uh, heavy LSD users can develop profound social problems, uh, completely ruin their sleep cycles, and lose interest in eating and personal hygiene. <laughs> they turn into hippies is what they're saying. Yeah, and, and she says something I do take issue with, that there's no one in, in rehab for LSD. That's not true. There are people in rehab for LSD. It's not common because she rightly points out that when you do LSD and then you do it again the next day, you and then the next day and the next day you become uh you build up a tolerance really fast yeah and you just need more and more LSD and things or, normalize or it doesn't work after a very short time right well like I said things normalize and you don't get the experience you're looking for um so like more uh, most other drugs it's not the kind of drug that you usually see people doing a lot of day in and day out all the time. Right. And what she's also saying is there's no no means for becoming psychologically or physically dependent on it, which makes it a non-addictive drug. Although the, the feds have it under Schedule 1. Right. Which means that it has a high likelihood for abuse, addiction, and that it has no medical usefulness whatsoever. So both of those two, yeah. um, but that's false for, for both, um, both of the... the 
reasons that the criteria, uh, yeah, yeah, both of the criteria for a Schedule One drug. Um, she also points out, and this is something I never considered, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, the effects of LSD aren't dependable. Like you never know what you're going to get. Right. And addicts crave that dependability. They want to know, like cocaine will do the same thing to me every time. Right. That bottle of Jack Daniels will do the same thing to me every time. Yeah, or that cigarette. Yeah, but um, I don't know what I'm going to get out of acid, so it just doesn't lend itself to that sort of addictive nature. Pretty interesting. Plus, it's also further interesting that a lot of people have used, I don't want to say a lot, I have no idea the number, but I know it's been used in the past, people have used LSD and other psychedelic drugs to quit addictions, yeah, like cigarette smoking, like alcoholism. And um, again, you mentioned our Can You Treat Mental Illness with Psychedelics episode, which was awesome. But we talked about that in that, that episode, too. All right, Josh, let's, I know this is a long one. Plus, we got the Hodgman bit. This is going to be our first two-hour show. Oh, my gosh. But we can't finish the show unless we talk a little bit about the cultural history. Mm-hmm. Uh, notably, someone you mentioned, uh, Timothy Leary, Dr. Timothy Leary, who actually worked at Harvard. Almost single-handedly is responsible for the initial boom turn against oh. LSD by the public and science. He took he took what was a legitimate field of inquiry yeah. and um, made it completely illegitimate. Like he's almost single-handedly to blame for yeah. acid being for science turning its back on acid. Yeah, he had he had a loud voice uh, and talked about a lot of like hippy dippy things that people didn't like. Scientists he, didn't like them associating it with LSD. He founded a church. Yeah, where <laughs> LSD was the sacrament of it. The League for Spiritual Discovery. Previous to that, though, at Harvard, he and his colleague Richard Alpert um, were actually trying to study it a little more legitimately. Then he got fired from Harvard in '63, and that's when he sort of went full bore toward, uh, you know, tune in, turn in, drop out, which he regrets that phrase. He, he, and he, he should not be blamed for that because he said later on that he did not mean like drop out of society and like, don't, he said that it was taken like, um, that people, people took it to mean get stoned and abandon all constructive activity. Right. And that that's not at all what he meant that he, when he was saying turn on, he was saying like, you know, Turn on your brain. Yeah, turn on your brain. Like, turn on your potential. Like, like, let's get things going. Yeah. Um, tune in to, uh, interact harmoniously with the world around you. Sure. And then drop out was to become self-reliant, not yeah. dependent on the man or whatever. So it whatever. was basically an after-school special that he was trying to, uh, make. Sure. <laughs> basically. <laughs> the more you know. And it, it was taken, you know, it, people take things like water. Like, they're looking for the path of least resistance in a lot of ways. Yeah. So they took it to mean, like, oh, it's great. Timothy Leary just gave us all a license to, like, not do anything useful. Yeah, and he didn't help really the upset all the crew cuts over there yeah. who are carrying everybody right now. Uh, then there was Ken Kesey, um, author of many books, uh, notably One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah. Um, Which and- that alone makes him a... a, a Great author. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or just like a, a major contributor to popular culture. Agreed. Or culture even. Yeah. Just that. <laughs> Agreed. Uh, he was uh, notable for being a part of the Merry Pranksters, which um, is documented in the great, great Tom Wolfe book, The Man. Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, one that of my is favorite books. Required reading. Really good. Um, and it documents a Merry Prankster. It was basically a, a school bus uh psychedelically painted full of hippies driving around with gallons and gallons of acid. 
at the time when the cops had no idea what acid was. Yeah. Or when it was not yet illegal. Yeah, but he got into acid because of the CIA. He was a volunteer mm-hmm. in the late 50s to dose himself. And uh he was, uh what did she call him here, an acid populist. So he was one of those that thought everybody needs to do this and it'll be a different world. Right. Uh, and then uh, finally, Mr. Owsley Stanley, all the deadheads out there just went, oh, Ooh, yeah. yeah, it's about time. They were so mad. Well, they never get mad, but <laughs> they don't get mad because they, they uh, get even. They have uh, <laughs> profound social interaction problems. <laughs> uh, he was a chemist who was in uh, Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, uh, studied at Cal Berkeley. And he was like, you know what? I'm taking a lot of bad LSD. And so I'm going to start making it myself. He was a self-taught chemist. Did you say that? Yeah. Wow. And he got really, really good at it. And Owsley LSD became the standard for good, clean acid in the 1960s and 70s. Yeah. And they used them at the acid tests, which um, Ken Kesey used to hold in San Francisco and the Grateful Dead used to play. And Owsley Stanley was also the sound engineer. Did he create the wall of sound? Was that him, his doing? No, that was... Uh, Phil uh, Spector. Oh, okay. But he was the dead's original sound man. And what he got known for was he was one of the first people to mix concerts live and in stereo and plug right into the board. <clears throat> so all those old, you know, deadheads love to trade the old uh, bootlegs. Mm-hmm. Those bootlegs sound so good because of Owsley. Gotcha. Um, because he was, you know, he was an innovator as a sound man. And he was one of the first investors in the dead financially. And because well, he, he was... A millionaire, LSD millionaire. Probably. Yeah. Said he made like 10,000 or 10 million hits of acid in his lifetime. Yeah. Uh, he gave away a lot of it though. Yeah. There was one, uh, it was a sit in, I can't remember what it was called, where he gave out, and by all accounts, 300,000 people took acid all in one place. Wow. Where? Oh, it had to be San Francisco. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he uh. <laughs> also, uh, designed the Steely with Bob Thomas, the very famous, Lightning Bolt Skull logo on the Grateful Dead album, Steal Your Face. Right off of your head. was designed by Owsley. Did not know that. Yep. And now all the deadheads are going, okay, you mentioned the Steely. Okay. I'm sure we got something two, wrong. Two there. and a half hours <laughs> in. Um, and Acid's making a bit of a comeback in San Francisco, too, among all the little technocrats that took that town over and raised What? The, They're tripping and stuff? Not really tripping. They're microdosing. They're basically Albert Hoffman had the idea that um, taking minuscule amounts of LSD could improve cognitive function. So basically, they're they're getting better at coding. They're taking it and going to work, and um, not fully tripping, but just having it's having some effect. Supposedly, that's like the new thing with acid. Yeah, and that is <clears throat> another reason I want to punch San Francisco in the face. <laughs> You are not the town you used to be. So, and they all know it. So don't get mad at me. They, uh, it's true. They, um, there's also some other stuff, Chuck. Like apparently, if you buy LSD these days, it, there's a really high likelihood that you're actually getting something called N bomb. Twenty five I dash N B O M E. Is it just another chemical? Uh... It's like a much more intense psychedelic. That's very similar to LSD, but it does have uh, shown toxic effects. Like people actually have died from overdoses on this stuff, oh, wow. thinking that they had LSD, which is not cool, man. No. You don't sell something saying it's one thing. Stay away from the orange sunshine. 
Um, and then there's also some other thing uh, called 1P LSD, and it's LSD with an extra propionyl bond that technically makes it legal that apparently it's open season on the Internet with that stuff right now. Kamel, Na- Kamel Nanjiani, the great comedian and friend of the show, has a great bit about uh, some designer drug, which is heroin and uh, Tylenol or uh, Tylenol cold medicine. Oh, codeine? Yeah, like with heroin. Okay. It's, it's just funny. He's like, you're already doing heroin. Right. It's like, the heroin's enough. <laughs> Don't hit Tylenol. Yeah, it's just, it's this, uh, it just seems like... Um, well, these are I'm like, not waxing nostalgic for the good old days of, of just acid, but it seems like if people are dying on something they think is acid, then maybe you're not doing it right. There you go. So, Chuck, I think that's it. That's LSD. Man, this could have been a two-parter. It could have been, but we're not we just, greedy. We stayed true. Just one. Yep. Uh, if you want to know more about LSD, just type those three letters into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com, and it will bring up this great article. And since I said search bar, it's time for listener mail. That's right. Very special listener mail featuring Mr. John Hodgman right here, right now. Oh, yeah. Okay, so here we are with an audio listener mail, uh, because as I read previously in the teaser, uh, Judge John Hodgman, a.k.a. John Hodgman (laughs) of The Daily Show, a.k.a. Haji. Right. Is here, and he refused to send us anything in uh, print. So he just said, why don't you have me on, and uh, we can duke it out over nostalgia once and for all. Hello, you guys. Hey, John. Nice to talk to you both. So, John, it's good to talk to you, too. I think fondly about the times in the past when we have spoken before. (laughs) But I always look forward more to the times when we may speak again, because time moves in one direction. And that is the, that is forward, and that is the direction I'm interested in. <laughs> That's the the little included um, intro to Happy Trails, the song. Is that so? Uh-huh. Time moves in one direction, and that is the <laughs> one I'm interested in. Yeah, yeah it's known Happy as the Lost tra- Verse, and then it, it's followed by and one and. <laughs> uh, so, John, uh, you listened to the to the nostalgia episode, right? When we were we were pretty hard on you. Uh, yeah, I don't know what you guys were so mad at me about. You, you especially, Chuck. I feel we're <laughs> we're stung by the the premise that I have stated frequently as settled law uh-huh. on my own Judge John Hodgman podcast, available at maximumfun dot org for free or on iTunes. <laughs> yeah. That nostalgia is the most toxic impulse, and I admit that I've. I, I employ a little hyperbole in that statement, but I, I think at its core, I believe that it is true that nostalgia, my point of view is that nostalgia, that is a yearning for the past, is at best unproductive and at worst poisonous. So, John, we talked about this. Chuck, Chuck introduced your radical views about nostalgia on the nostalgia episode, right? Your right. leftist theories. <laughs> right? How did you do, how did you come to this conclusion about nostalgia? Like were you nostalgizing and um like bit your tongue off or something? I mean, what what happened to make you feel this way about nostalgia, if I may ask? Good well, Thank you. I don't know that there was any one particular turning point because and the truth is that I I am a guy who likes old-timey things, 
right? And this is not to say old-timey things are bad. I grew up going to the Coolidge Corner movie house in Coolidge Corner, Brookline, Massachusetts, where I grew, you know, which is my hometown. You wrote a penny farthing to work? I did not write, I did not write a penny. I'm not that kind of loathsome. But you know, at that time, all they would do is show old Marx Brothers movies and the Thin Man marathons and even, even, you know, uh, more recent old movies, as it were. And I love, uh, I, I would love going into so-called nostalgia stores to pour through, uh, old, old movie posters and I'd love used bookstores. I love the trappings of seeing culture, what it was like uh, at, at a time that it was different from the way it is in my own life. Uh, I love to I love to rummage through junk stores and thrift stores and find stuff. And I com- in listening to your podcast, I completely uh, uh, felt with you. I guess that is called empathy. That's different. Feeling with. Empathy? No, I mean em- empathy and nostalgia are different. No, I but I felt empathy for uh for y- y- your individual expressions of the things that give you that that wispy feeling of nostalgia um and and how that is a, how that is in a personal mode a very comforting feeling because I can speak honestly that you know I went when I went through when I when my mom passed away about uh, 15 years ago I went I could not go I could not engage with any culture that was more challenging um than reading the Dorling Kindersley books that of Star Wars vehicles like that was the only thing I could read before going to sleep because I was in such emotional pain in the present had you had you read those as a, a younger lad well no because I mean no uh but uh because they didn't exist but those DK books of the of the Star Wars vehicles that sort of Give you these cross sections of all the vehicles. Uh huh. You know, it was not, I was not engaging with new culture per se. I was just revisiting my feelings about Star Wars. Do you know what I Understood. mean? Understood. Yeah. Yes. So I wasn't exactly playing with old toys in, in like playing with, playing with my old at at. I never had the at at, nor did I have the Millennium Falcon. I never had either one of those two, and I'm yeah. still, I'm a little bitter about it still. Yeah. I know. Those were, those were the big ticket items, but for sure. From my point of view, uh, storage was a real problem with those things. Very untidy. <laughs> well, they they served as storage um, boxes themselves, really. Yeah, but you couldn't put the AT-AT into the Millennium Falcon, and neither <laughs> none of them fit onto any good sized shelf. And and even as a even as a nine or ten year old uh, uh, neurotic only child, I had real tidiness issues. <laughs> But I will say that, uh, you know, um, I wasn't at a point where I would be playing with my old, uh, oh, you know, my old, my old Lobot figurine, who was my favorite, in, in bed as a grown man next to my wife to fall asleep. Right. <laughs> but I would certainly read, I would certainly read about the propulsion mechanism of a Bespin twin cloud car. I gotcha. Uh, for sure. And re- yeah. and dig into those weeds and, and, and prod those feelings. And indeed to today, you know, it's still the case that I, I have two things on my nightstand because night, night is the time when, when, you know, and going to bed is, is the, the time when you might be most prompted to feel nostalgia because on the one hand, you're trying to ease yourself to rest. And on the other hand, as you grow older in particular, you realize that every going to sleep time is a rehearsal for your own death. So whatever you're anxious about can really come out at night or in the middle of the night, right, when you wake up. 
during mm-hmm. Second Sleep, which is a concept that I heard about first on the Great Stuff You Should Know podcast available on the How Stuff Works Network, right? Okay, <laughs> got the plugs in. And so on my bedside table, both real and virtual, I have two sets of culture, right? One is n- new stuff that I've never read before uh, or or encountered before or watched before or whatever it is that's going to be challenging or interesting or provocative, even if it's only because I've never seen it or read it or listened to it. And then there's the old, the older stuff that's going to re- reconnect me with a feeling that I might have had in the past. But even in the older stuff, like I got a pile, of, I got a pile of old Avengers comics from the seventies, but he, which are the, which are dumb and, unch- and profoundly unchallenging, and remind me to some degree of what it felt like to be a little kid buying comics on a rack. But even those are comics that I've not really read before because they were before my time. So even then, mm-hmm. but it's like. I get it. I totally appreciate and was illuminated, I should say, by your podcast for pointing out um, that that this therapeutic, personal therapeutic aspect of transporting yourself or giving yourself a good feeling by re, by uh, reencountering um, or or imagine reencountering culture from your past or thinking about good times from your past. Is real and measurable and, and, uh, scientific, right? That's part of, that was part of your conclusion, correct? Yeah. Right. So I get, I, I am on board with you for that. That nostalgia from a personal point of view can be a truly soothing therapeutic tool, uh, that can, can help calm you during periods of stress and, and this disorder in your life. In that sense, it's like a drug, though, right? And it's a, like all drugs, it should be used in moderation. Like, <laughs> and the and there is a reason for that specifically because I think that it is a, uh, uh, when overused, it is a drug that can cause truly deleterious effects in the happiness of your life. And here is the reason why: nostalgia. Is this the, cru- is this the crux? Yeah, I'm oh, not. the crux is 30, 40 minutes off. Uh, well, look, I'm going on a long, I'm going on a long disquisition in part because I love the sound of my own voice. <laughs> and in part because you guys called me up because I refuse to write any of this down for free just because you mentioned my name in a podcast. So you, you can either take the free essay or not. But if you'd like, if you'd like to jump in and challenge me on any of this, I, I'm always Glad to do this in a more back and forth manner. Well, no, the, so the reason neither one of us challenged is because you, you've so far totally agreed with everything we believe about nostalgia, basically. <laughs> yeah, here's where it turns dark. When it turns toxic is, well, is in overuse or over application. And, and there are two ways that that can happen, but figuratively poison to oneself or to society at large. And here is the, here is, the reason why it is a dangerous drug. Nostalgia is founded on a fallacy, on a delusion that is has two parts. One, that the past was better. Not true. And two, two not true, not true. Are you saying? I think that? he's agreeing with you. Oh, right. No, 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 I'm not. Go right. ahead. Oh, oh. Right. <laughs> okay. Quite right. Quite right, Chuck. Not true. Because. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I'm. My brain just stripped out. There is no, there is no rosy past that you can, in, in, in your life or in your imagining of your societal life, 
that does not have counterexamples of why it was actually far worse. So but lots of people. You, you no, agree with a, that. Sorry to interrupt, John. Do you right. agree with that, don't you, Chuck? No, I, that's one of the things I fully disagree with. Sometimes things were better in the past. Okay, all right. Pick a time. Huh? Pick a time. No, no, no I'm not talking about an, an era. I'm talking about personally. Oh, uh, sure. In someone's life, yeah. there were times that are better than others. Of course. So you're talking about as an era. Yes. Okay. That's, okay. That's where I misunderstood you. Yeah. The, 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 so, okay. You could, you could make an argument like my, my experience of say, uh, uh, the 1980s. Yeah. You could say that my experience of the 1980s was a good, uh, was better than my experience now. And that might be true for your personal, um, for your personal experience, but that might not be true, uh, if you were, uh, a gay man dying of AIDS. Right? Okay. You know, yeah, a gay yeah. man I, who's I, just been diagnosed with I think HIV. I've misunderstood you all the, all these years and that you were always saying, even on a personal level, uh, level, times were not better. Uh, and it's just, you know, a misremembering of the past. Yeah, because it sounds like everything John is saying, we covered on the, po- on the podcast, on this nostalgia episode. Yeah, well, this is exactly right. <laughs> because I've explained all of this to Chuck before, and he obviously misremembered it from the past. Because memory is <laughs> absolutely selective. And the things, and, and, and even, and, and I think the common aspect of nostalgia that we can agree on is that there is one constant to one's reimagining of the past. It is reimagining uh, of a time when uh, you were younger. And that's always better than being older. True. Sure, but just because you're too dumb to know what is really going on, you don't have the responsibility, you know, that you that right. you're saddled with as an adult. Like yeah. you can make a lot of a lot of cases that for the average person, childhood was easier and you know, more enjoyable than yeah. adulthood, you know, in a lot of ways. Quite so. For the average person, that's quite, that's quite true, I think. And also, even if that person had a, even if a person had a terrible childhood, they were still at a time when their whole life was laid ahead of them and they, they could have dreams and ideals. But now that we're getting into our late thirties and, and for me, mid forties, you know, it's, it's all just coming to an end. <laughs> that's yeah. how optimistic <laughs> I am about the future. <laughs> but the second part of the delusion is that the past is attainable in some way. And I don't think either of you are okay. suffering from this particular nostalgia, but let me say this. The the thing that turned me against nostalgia, I just remembered what it is in some ways. Is that one of the things I was comforting myself and and it was it was a I I had two big body blows uh in the year 2000 and then the year 2001. And that was the, the death of my mother in the year 2000. And then the World Trade Center attacks in the year 2001. And there was a lot of Star Wars reading and taking of Valium that I had stolen from my mother's medicine cabinet after she passed away in order to get through those <laughs> long and difficult Hey, it's, it's fair game. Well, you know what? Nostalgia is a comforting pill to take. But there are actual comforting pills to take. And if you take too much of them, it's a problem because on a personal level, you might become mired in nostalgia to the point where you, you become depressed with your everyday life 
and you because you know on a level you can't regain the past that you have convinced yourself was better and more glorious. That is that is a bad state to be in. And if you want to learn more about that, listen to Dana Gould's incredible monologue about uh, about Buddhism and its rejection of the past and its disconcern with the future and the embrace of the present on his own podcast, the Dana Gould Hour, especially the uh, episode Happy Sad, right? But the other thing that I was engaging with was um, a movement of jihad, which is hardly unique, but was on my mind at that time, that is founded on a principle of nostalgia. Radicalized jihadis, right, like like a lot of radicalized right-wing terrorists in, in the United States, believe that the past was better and that the present is corrupt and that we can do something to get back to the way it was. And, well, John, not just with jihad, I think with any conservative and especially ultra-conservative movement in not just religion but also politics, economics, just about any any body of uh, of ultra conservative people seem to harken back to the past and want to bring it back so that the future is more like some idealized past. No, not more, not more like, not more like, exactly like. Yeah. And 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 you know the the thing that's in, and and I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say that it's a far right impulse. There's certainly far left utopian impulses that express the same sort of if we just get back. This is where we went wrong. And if we go back here and and freeze here, um, it will be better. Now, look, yeah, but I don't have any honest. problem. I don't have any problem with by anyone can do whatever they want. People like what they like. And if you, as a society, want to isolate yourself from contemporary society, like the Mennonite movement or the Amish movement or what have you, and 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 try to try to hold your own ground in contemporary culture. Um, because you think that is a better way to live, go for it. As long as you're not hurting anyone else, that's great. But don't be deceived. Star Wars is itself an entire story premised on nostalgia. Things were better before the Empire, and if we blow up enough human beings, we can make it good again. We can make the galaxy great again. And does that rhetoric have any echoes with today? Any one presidential campaign ring a bell when I say we can make the galaxy great again? We're going to win so much <laughs> against the empire that it's going to make your head spin. It's, you know, it, it's, it's, it, Star Wars is, uh, and, and I, I have, I think I've had this fight with you guys before. It's like, it's, there's a reason Star Wars isn't science fiction. It's pure fantasy. Because it is a, it is nostalgic by, uh, by in in its very DNA, and that makes it a great story, right? But yeah. as soon as you start having political movements founded on the idea that we actually can turn back time, then I feel that that was the moment I suppose th- that I began to feel like, oh yeah, you know what? I want to close this Star Wars book because I can't go back. To that, I'm in an uncomfortable new present, and my job as a human is to make the best of it now. And so I did, although I still dip back into it from time to time. So now you just watch The Force Awakens, basically, is what you're saying. Well, I feel like I had a cultural obligation to watch The Force Awakens, and I enjoy, and I enjoyed it. Um, Once. 
but there but but the thing that I enjoy about it the most is that it is attempting to move the story forward and I'm happy to care about characters in a in a very familiar world but I'm happy to care about characters that I that I've never seen before and be concerned about what's going to happen for them in the future as contrasted to the to the prequel trilogy um which still exists no matter what people say which completely you know misunderstood a lot of things but one of the things it misunderstood was that if you have a movie that is founded if you have a movie like Star Wars or Empire or Jedi one big trilogy that is founded on nostalgia that that the past before that the past was better than the present and if we blow up enough stuff we can get back to that wonderful past then you cannot show the story of the past because all the past will reveal is it was terrible then too. People were just as corrupt. You know, there, there is just as much bad stuff going on Mm -hmm. and, and you, and there is no good past to get back to. So in many ways that they were, those three, I mean, those three prequel trilogies were, were dark in the sense, even, even in their lightest moments in the sense that they were basically about, uh, you know, the, the corruption of, uh, foreign interventionism as a policy and, you know, misusing military for personal agendas and all sorts of weird crypto critiques of the George W. Bush administration for which those movies don't get a whole lot of credit because they're terrible and not fun to watch. But yeah. they were, but they were much, they're, they're much more rooted, not surprisingly, in a middle to elderly aged man's appreciation of what life is really like. That is to say, George Lucas. Then the fr- the first three trilogy, the first the original trilogy was when he made it at a much younger age, and he could afford to be nostalgic. Wow, mind's blown, right? Yeah, yeah, that's what I do all day. <laughs> you just blow minds. That's right, Alan. Josh was threatening to auction off my Skype, and I'm not I'm not scared to tell you it's Hodge hyphen man. Oh boy. You go, you go, oh boy. Yeah, you go, uh, if you catch me on Skype and I feel like picking up, I'll blow your mind too. <laughs> nice. <laughs> You're like Weird Al Yankovic, Hodgman. Why does he answer his own phone? He once tweeted that, uh, he was like hanging out in the, I think the Minneapolis airport and here's the number for a payphone he's standing next to. So give him a call and some fan called and he talked to him for like 20 minutes. What, when, when was this? Couple years back, twenty-five years ago, when there were payphones. However, yeah. <laughs> there's a, a time when there was tw- Twitter and payphones. Yeah, there was like a six-month period, and Weird Al made the be- the best of it. Well, he's nothing if not resourceful. That was a great. Those were great days. I remember Twitter once I was phones coincided. Yeah, I know. You know what? That's true. It really was. That was a golden age for Twitter. It was. We need to get back to that. I yeah. That's where. That's you know what? I can acknowledge that there was a golden age for Twitter. Um, when it was different and a little bit more playful because it was so much smaller. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. But there's no way to go back. Well, That's where I draw the line. You're That's- on, oh, and you've just moved forward, haven't you? You've gone from Twitter to to Instagram now as your jam. Is that correct? Well, I I I enjoy, I still use I use all of my social meds. My Instagram, <laughs> my my Tumblr, and my Twitter. Mm. Uh. And, and, and all for different things. I still have a, a I still have a deep fondness for Twitter. I don't I don't do anything with Facebook, and I apologize, y'all. You Snapchatting? 
No, I didn't. I couldn't get into that. I couldn't add another thing to my portfolio. I was already overburdened. And Facebook, I have, you know, there's a Judge John Hodgman Facebook page, which is wonderfully maintained by Max Fund. There's an official John Hodgman fan page, which is wonderfully maintained uh, by a a fan of mine, uh, Benjamin, in San Francisco, and I'm grateful to him for it. And all of my social medias feed into those things. And if you're on Facebook and you want to follow them, you can find them or whatever. But but my social media sort of declination is Instagram to Tumblr to Twitter, but sometimes I just get deep into Twitter again because just for mm-hmm. the old times, you know what I mean. You on uh, you on Fish Bob? You on are you on Deck Chair? Am I am I on Toggle Switch? <laughs> am I on am I on Matchbook Car? Am I on Cyborg Ape? You're just looking just around just, the room right I'm now. I'm just describing. Am I on Bottle of Sand? Am I on Coffee Cup Lid? <laughs> Uh, so, John, I think in closing, I think the one thing I would ask is that you revise your your mantra to uh, nostalgia can, for many people, sometimes be a toxic impulse. Yeah, good mantra, check. Or, or it sounds like it should should be revised to something like nostalgia is the most toxic impulse society as a whole can engage in. Oh, I like that one, Josh. Sorry, Chuck. That's right. That's a that's a nice full sentence. It needs some work. Well, I'm going to go but post stand, mine on Fish Bob. But I stand behind it. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thank you, guys. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. You know, you know, I'm such a supporter of uh, stuff you should know podcast. This very podcast, and I'm grateful always for the support that you offer me. Well, yeah, and we will uh, see you in New York, right, at our Bellhouse shows, both of them, I assume. Yeah, you want to announce when those are. Uh, yeah, well, we already have. They're already sold out, you know, June 29th and 30th. Oh, well, let me tell you about something that isn't sold out. Okay. June 9th, yeah. I will be appearing at Largo at the Coronet. Oh, we've done that. That's fun. Wonderful, a wonderful theater, uh, uh, there on La Cienega, mm-hmm. uh, for a one night only performance of my latest stand up talking funny storytelling personal story show. Uh, Which one? What? Vacation Land. Oh, we've seen that. It's good. Thank you very much. Yeah, we we you guys saw it in Atlanta when I was down there, mm-hmm. and uh, I I am bringing it to Los Angeles for one night only before the Max Fun Con. Yeah, uh, which is the thing that is involved with the MaximumFun.org uh, podcast network, where you can hear my Judge John Hodgman podcast. So those are all things you can find out about at JohnHodgman.com, or just remember what I said and remember. It was the best thing you ever heard, and you wish you could hear it again. <laughs> hey, and you and I will be doing our uh, annual uh, trivia part, uh, bar trivia show at Max MaxFunCon. I know, but you know what? Now you're just making people sad because because they can't go to any. Because it's all sold. That's all sold out. The wow. only thing you can the only thing you can do, people, is is buy tickets for my show at Largo <laughs> on June 9th. It's the only ticket available in where do in they culture. where do they go to buy those, John? Uh, they can go to johnhodgman.com slash tour and there's a link directly to the Largo ticket page from there. Or Excellent. You can go, or you can, I think it's largo-la.net. Do, do, do what I said. Go to johnhodgman.com slash tour. Yeah. And everyone, we can attest that that will be a very good show. Yeah. Uh, and you can uh, find John on all his social meds. I'm nostalgic for the time when we called it social media. Well, we're moving on. <laughs> oh, good. No. Now it's not even called social meds. Now it's called somies. All right. Lovely to talk to you guys. I will, uh, I I will sign off now. That is all. I, uh, I, Chuck, was not expecting Jihad to make an appearance in that. Were you? 
I was not expecting Jihad, Donald Trump, or Darth Maul to make an appearance. <laughs> well, thanks a huge amount to Hodgman. We appreciate it uh, for coming on. And the next time we have some sort of disagreement, we'll have him back. Yeah. Always a pleasure. Uh, and if you want to get in touch with us in, in the meantime, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can join us on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know. You can send us an email to StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Are you thirsty? Well, Richard's rainwater is caught clean before it even hits the ground. Rain is naturally pure, so there's no need for harsh chemicals or additives. Richard's rainwater contains no chlorine, no forever chemicals, no microplastics, no nothing. Enjoy the smooth, clean taste of still rainwater or the cold pressured bubbles of sparkling rainwater. Just visit richardsrainwater.com to find a retailer near you. That's richardsrainwater.com. And for a coupon, text STUFF to 251-292-8887 and receive $2 off a 12-pack case of Richard's Rainwater. Hey, if you haven't heard of Visible, well, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon as low as $25 a month every month, taxes and fees included. Use promo code STUFF20 to receive $20 off your first month for listening to this podcast. Switch now at Visible.com. For data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. The Visible monthly rate is $25 per month.